The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I am your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about what the Republicans want you to believe is the big, bad IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. Now that Republicans control the U.S. House, they've already set their legislative sights on defunding the IRS, a.k.a. defunding the tax police, and rolling back the modest investments made to the agency passed by Democrats last year, I'm going to be talking with journalist and tax policy expert Jesse Isinger, who will help explain everything you need to know about what the IRS is doing, what it's not doing, and a lot of the bullshit flying around the entire discourse about the agency. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment, One Thing, where the Levers reporters share the one thing that's been most on their minds. This week, they spoke about the chat GPT, the new AI chatbot that has been writing college papers for students, and some say could very well make thousands and thousands of human jobs obsolete. If you want access to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, Share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth. And so we really do need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is today's corporate media. As always, I'm here with producer Frank. What's up, producer Frank? I'm doing good, David. Uh, Big day for my household over here. It is Oscar nomination day. Uh, a little bit of a little bit of a deviation from what we normally cover here on the podcast, but I know, like you, I'm a big movie fan, and you know, I, I know that at this point in my life, I know that the Oscars are bullshit. I know that it's you know mostly a rigged uh, voting system for the most part. It has you know historically very bad uh, trends and patterns that it follows, but. Still that part of me that gets really excited when the nominations come out. And I was thrilled to see some really cool, offbeat, weird films uh, get nominated. I think we're seeing more and more of that happen as the as the Academy becomes more and more diverse. So seeing everything everywhere all at once have some of the most nominations, seeing something like Triangle of Sadness, which is like a really dark, satirical movie about class politics, get a few nominations. I- I'm really excited. I'm excited for this year's Oscars. Uh, did you check out? I should have tuned in. This is the year anniversary from when I got an Oscar nomination. Uh, so That's I remember right. we're, we're always going to market from now on. <laughs> we're always going to market. And how long has it been since David has been nominated from an Oscar? So I remember waking up in the morning. I mean, they announced them really early in the morning. I remember waking up in the morning to my phone started blowing up and, you know, oh, my God, it actually happened. You guys got nominated for best screenplay. It was certainly it was it was totally exciting. Uh, and yes, Look, there's a lot of nonsense with the Oscars, uh, but it it's still, I don't know, ever since I was a little kid, my parents got excited about the Oscars. So there's a lot of that baked in. And it is good to see uh, more off the beaten path movies uh, get 
nominations. That's that's excellent. And that, that look that happened that happened last year when when I mean I can't believe Don't Look Up got nominated um, for all the awards that it did and everything everywhere all at once. I mean as a good example, that movie is just mind blowingly awesome, and it's good to see that it got uh, it's getting recognition. Uh, before we get to our discussion about the IRS, let's take one moment here to just uh, look at one other top story uh, of the week. Uh, the potential for Social Security cuts. Um, Joe Manchin, as we reported at The Lever, uh, was on television this weekend and said that he actually supports instead of uh, supporting cuts to Social Security, as the Republicans uh, may end up pushing for, uh, he supports lifting the payroll tax cap, which to my mind is ending the tax break, the Social Security tax break that the rich get. Can you explain a little bit about how this, the, the payroll tax, what you're actually talking about, how this works functionally? Yes. So if you make up to $160,000 uh, a year, all of your income is subjected to the Social Security tax, the FICA tax. Any income above $160,000 a year is not subject to the Social Security tax. So put it this way, um, if you make uh, $50,000 a year as a worker in an industry, uh, all of your income, 100% of your income taxed for Social Security. If you are the CEO of a company that, uh, and you are paid $20 million a year, less than 1% of your income is taxed uh, for Social Security. So for a while now, uh, going back actually 20, 25 years, progressive lawmakers, as we uncovered in our reporting at the lever, progressive lawmakers have been pushing to either raise the cap or eliminate the cap completely. Just say, listen, all of everyone's income, all of everyone's income is subjected to the social security tax. Right now, it's it's actually incredibly regressive. The first $160,000 of income is uh, subject to the tax. And then if you're a billionaire, you make $50 million in a year, uh, all income above $160,000 is not taxed. Now, it seems like it should be the opposite. It seems like the less money you make, the less taxes you should have to pay. But, you know, hey, that's uh, that's that's U.S. tax policy for you. Now, the argument for the way it's set up right now is that you're only tax on the first 160,000 because that that's the maximum amount of benefits on the other side that you will you will get that that you're funding your own effectively your own your own future benefits uh, and that if a billionaire had to put in uh, or get taxed for all of the money uh, that they earn uh, that they're only going to get the max of social security uh, uh, meaning that the extra money that they put in just goes to uh, to, to the to the social security trust fund uh, now so there's a philosophical question here. I mean, I've asked the question in that philosophical debate. Look, as a regular rank and file taxpayer, I put my money in and I don't get all of the I don't have access to all of the subsidies, special tax breaks and bailouts that billionaires uh, get uh, sort of seemingly every month, every year. Uh, so, you know, it depends on your philosophical attitude about taxes. My view is we're all putting money in. Uh, for the uh, basic uh, safety net foundation of society. And so I think there shouldn't be a payroll tax cap. There should just be all income is income, whether it's capital gains income, uh, whether it's uh, wages, whatever it is, is all income and should be uh, put into the Social Security. Uh, the, the tax should apply to all of that income. Uh, and, and that's a simple system. So it was actually good news to see Manchin actually say this. Now, I don't want to give him too much credit. I don't know how how much uh, how performative it is, but it is 
a good reminder that people like Bernie Sanders, Peter DeFazio, uh, who we just recently had on our, our live chat, the, con- the former congressman from Oregon, have been pushing this for 20 to 25 years. And now you have uh, the most conservative Democrat saying that he also supports it and that there shouldn't be Social Security cuts. The big question now. The huge question. Joe Biden has said lately that he's not going to try to cut Social Security, not going to try to cut a deal with the Republicans. But let's not forget his entire much of his career up until basically about 2020. He has pushed various kinds of Social Security cuts for decades, seeking a so-called grand bargain with Republicans. And now you may have Republicans who say to him, listen, in, as in, in exchange for the raising the debt ceiling, uh, we want you to agree to, to either Social Security cuts outright or at least a commission to cut Social Security. And he has been saying that he's not going to play that game. But I kind of feel like you never really know until it happens, especially with somebody with that history. I mean, I, I, I don't I'm not sure what he's going to do. We should also mention real quickly that former President Donald Trump uh, took to socials to say Republicans do not touch Social Security and Medicare. So, I mean, he's, you know, say what you will about the guy. He does have a, a, a sense of where the pu- where the public winds are blowing. So if this guy is saying, hey, don't touch two of the most popular uh, entitlement programs that we have, then, you know, do, do you think there's any chance that, uh, you know, McCarthy Republican leadership uh, heed what he's saying? Or do you think they're just going to do their own thing anyway? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, Donald Trump is a lot of times hard to predict. And the fact that he, I mean, here's the one thing I will say about Donald Trump. This is not to praise him. This is just to say there's some part of his reptilian brain that has some sense of what's good politics and bad politics. So I don't want to ascribe any morality to it or like he's a good person. We would never ascribe morality to Donald Trump. (laughs) Never, not ever. I would never do that. But clearly some synapse in his brain is like, it's actually bad politics to go try to cut Social Security. So I'm going to tell my party not to go do that. I don't think that's because he's a good dude. I don't think that's because he's a nice person. The question you're right is, will his party actually listen to him? Um, Look, For the most part, I I hope they do listen to him. I I think cutting Social Security, even having that as part of the discourse, is a bad thing. We should be talking about expanding Social Security. Uh, That's what Joe Biden campaigned on. That's what Bernie Sanders campaigned on. That's wildly popular among Americans. That's actually what's needed in the macro economy right now. So we should be talking about that. The fact that we're back to even having it in the discourse that we need to cut Social Security uh, right what is it? It's now, um, I guess it's 12 years after the Obama administration commission to uh, cut Social Security, the proposed cuts of Social Security. The, back, the fact that we're still back here and not talking about expanding Social Security is a bit depressing. But again, I was a little bit hardened to see. I don't know like I trust Joe Manchin, but I was a little bit hardened to see him on television actually saying that he supports uh, talking, uh, supports plans, proposals, the idea of lifting the Social Security cap. And, you know, he had he he actually didn't just sort of flippantly say it. He had a, a bit of an analysis here that's that echoes what I've heard progressives say. He said, quote, if you're getting a paycheck in West Virginia now in a state like mine, where the median income is much lower than the hundred sixty thousand, they're paying a hundred percent of the tax, he said. In wealthier areas of America, they're paying a very small percentage of that tax. It's like, yo, Joe Manchin, like you're gross and disgusting in lots of different ways. But like stopped watch is 
correct twice a day, I guess. And like, that's exactly right. That's a hundred percent true. And it's good to hear even the most conservative Democrat say that. Now we're going to see whether anyone tries to, um, to do anything about it. I'm not holding my breath, but at least the discourse seems to be going in the right direction. Now, I can't say that about our big interview of the day, the discourse over the IRS. We're going to take a quick break, but we're going to be talking about the IRS, the Republicans' effort to defund the IRS. We'll be talking about that with Jesse Eisinger uh, right after the break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about one of our most important government agencies, also one of our most vilified government agencies, the Internal Revenue Service. Now, before you fall asleep or think this is going to be boring because the IRS just sounds like one of those dreary agencies, the IRS, it's like I'm almost falling asleep just saying that. We have to remember how important this is. The IRS the ability of the government to raise revenue, the to enforce basic tax laws is genuinely one of the foundations of, of civilization, right? If a government can't enforce basic tax laws and collect revenue, then it's not really a government. So a few weeks ago, House Republicans passed a bill to rescind most of the IRS's new funding, which was passed last year by Democrats as part of that Inflation Reduction Act. Democrats passed an additional $80 billion in funding for the agency to help it audit high-income earners and corporations who skirt paying their taxes, as well as updating their antiquated computer systems, uh, which when you try to call the IRS, you have a routine question. You can't even uh, get someone on the phone much less get uh, an answer because their entire system, their entire bureaucracy is so underfunded. Additionally, uh, the Treasury Department says that this funding uh, will improve all of that. It'll improve the IRS's services as Americans are filing their taxes this season, resulting in faster processing of returns, quicker distributions of credits, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Republicans are trying to make good on their promise to defund the agency which would make it easier for millionaires and billionaires to continue cheating on their taxes. They are audited at a far lower rate than working class people. That is a fact. And that's because there aren't enough auditing resources to take on the uh, billionaires who use complex tax schemes to avoid lots of taxes. And we're talking every year hundreds of billions of dollars. This is real money. A few weeks ago, Republican House members passed their so-called Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act, which would basically stop any progress from being made. It would eliminate about $71 billion of that new funding and would add roughly $114 billion to the deficit over the next decade. Now, you might be wondering, how can you cut $71 billion out of spending, but that would actually add instead of uh, subtract uh, from the deficit? It's because the funding funds the enforcement of the tax laws, which collect uh, taxes uh, from very, very rich people who have most of the money in America. So if you don't fund the enforcement, any savings you have on cutting the enforcement, you actually lose more money by not 
collecting the taxes that are owed. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of taxes that are going unpaid. They are owed, but going unpaid by the wealthy every year. So to help explain everything you need to know about what's going on with this, why you should care about this, I spoke with ProPublica journalist and tax policy expert, Jesse Isinger. Jesse and I got into the nitty gritty of how the IRS actually operates, how it can improve, and what would happen if Republicans get their way in trying to cut the IRS's budget. Hey, Jesse, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad we're talking to you uh, at a moment when what you've been reporting on for a very long time is uh, back in the news. So last week, Republican House members voted to cut funding for the IRS. Now, they've been voting to cut funding for the IRS for like 15, 20 years, uh, the Republicans have. So I guess this is not new. But it's part of their wider plan to undercut or roll back the policies passed by Democrats in the last two years of the Biden administration, because the Biden administration uh, managed to achieve something that hasn't happened in a while, which is more money for the IRS. So let's start there. Remind us uh, what exactly the legislation Democrats uh, passed, what it actually did with regards to the IRS. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. It's like deja vu all over again, all over again, deja vu. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we get, I'm getting tired of these cycles. So the Democrats in the giant Inflation Reduction Act included a massive uh, infusion of spending to the IRS. And we're going to get into this uh, in a second, but that spending was absolutely necessary because the IRS is a an agency on life support after cuts primarily from Republican Congress in starting in 2010. So it calls for 80 billion over 10 years. About half of that is for enforcement. Uh, which is absolutely necessary because enforcement in particular has been decimated. And then the rest is going to go to shore up things that they call customer service because they like to think of taxpayers as customers. The Republicans kind of forced that kind of language on them. Um, but it's hard to get a person to answer the phone, um, and that's really annoying. Um, when you call up the IRS. So they're going to try to answer phones um, more quickly. They're going to hire a lot of people like that. Um, they're going to try to hire people to respond to correspondence uh, more quickly um, and things like that. So it's going to make it, in theory, a more responsive agency that can enforce the tax laws of the country. And, and that's exactly what the Treasury Department is saying this week, that that. It, the Inflation Reduction Act, the funding for the IRS will initially make it easier for people to file their taxes and deal with the with the IRS. I, I want to focus in on that for a second, because what, what you hear from the Republicans right now in justifying uh, uh, their proposal to cut uh, the IRS is they're insisting that this is going to deploy an army of uh, mean, nasty auditors to audit uh, working class people, middle class people, and the poor, uh, and that that's all the money is really going for. And before we get into who's actually facing audits and who who isn't, I, I want to start with with the the question of is that really what the money is going for? And I ask this in the sense that having dealt with the IRS as just a normal everyday person running a running our company, running um, my own life. 
it is impossible to deal with this agency more impossible than it is to deal with a with a company with 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 really anything and and I don't think it's just because the government is like red tapey I think it's it's because the IRS just doesn't have enough resources to deal with the influx of paperwork, the basic day-to-day business. So is that your perception? Is that a fair assessment? And and I guess the, the follow-up question then would be, shouldn't businesses like regular run-of-the-mill businesses and people want a better IRS that they have to deal with? <laughs> like, where do we get to this place where it's like better funding the agency that you have to deal with, that this is somehow bad? Like, shouldn't it be something that we think will make our lives a little bit easier? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. So let's first yeah. take first take the Republicans, then we're going to take how we got here and then what the kind of underlying motivations are. So the first thing, the Republicans have uh, unleashed a litany of total bullshit, that's the only way to describe it, about what the uh, $80 billion influx is going to do. For instance, one thing they've completely ignored all the money that's going to go for this basic level of kind of bureaucratic functioning or systems upgrades. Uh, part of the IRS continues to use a computer language called COBOL, which was uh, a 1960s language, and they literally have to get guys out of retirement to upgrade things into uh, uh, whenever there's a glitch um, to to see it because people don't have facility with this language anymore. You know, that's just one small example. Another small example is they uh, literally do have billions and billions of pieces of paper that they have to deal with um, still because their systems have been so starved of funding. Um, So when the Republicans say they're going to be 83 7,000 agents, armed agents, storming small businesses um, with uh, AR-15s. Um, I think Chuck Grassley said AK-15s. Um, you know, <laughs> liberals always get attacked for uh, getting guns wrong. Um, so maybe they'll have their AK-15s um, storming small businesses. It, it's just complete myth. Um, Eighty. There aren't going to be 87,000 new employees, period. They're going to be replacing uh, people who have left, plus the IRS is facing this huge retirement crisis. So the 87 is going to kind of backfill the loss there. It's not going to be 87,000 net new employees. Of course, that's the aspiration. We'll see if they get there. The second thing is a tiny, minuscule fraction um, of the IRS is involved in the kind of criminal um, type of enforcement, mostly for drug cartels, where they actually are using um, serious weaponry and uh, storming places. It's not going to be small businesses. And the the more important, significant audit myth that the Republicans have uh, spread is that this is going to result in a huge number of audits of um, average Americans. Um, the fact is that audits have plummeted. Um, so when we go back to where the budgets were cut in starting in 2000, uh, you have in real dollars about $2 billion taken out of the IRS budget of a budget of about um, $11, 12000000000 billion. Giant, giant cuts in real dollars, which means that tens of thousands of employees have left the agency over the last 10 years. Um, And those people were the highest 
uh, skilled people by and large or disproportionately because those were the people that could get jobs in the private sector. So the audit rates, particularly of large businesses and um, the wealthy have plummeted. Audits of the wealthy are down over 80% from then. And large companies used to be audited every single year, year in, year out. And companies often had, a, the large companies had a more than 100% audit rate because there were multiple audits going on in multiple years for large companies. Now it's down to about large companies half of the company, large companies get audited every year. And that overstates things dramatically because they've narrowed the audits. So the audits are thinner. You saw this with wealthy people and corporations. You saw an illustration of this when uh, the Trump taxes came out and it turned out they had assigned one guy to this. And uh, Trump's taxes were infernally complicated, not unusual for a ultra wealthy person. Um, he had a million He's feeding into it, partnerships um, feeding into his uh, income, and they assign one guy to it. It's just impossible for one guy to audit that stuff. Um, so there's this huge resource constraint. So you have seen this kind of level of lies and propagandizing against the uh, IRS really since the mid-1990s. That's when it kind of fully flowered. Um, and you've seen myths before. Um, there were these hearings in the late 1990s um, when Clinton was president about how the IRS was storming small businesses <laughs> with guns and putting people on the floor. And there's some lurid tale of some uh, person testifying in Congress about how uh, some IRS people were ogling his teenage daughters who had a sleepover. It was really kind of lascivious and uh, lurid and supposedly some these deputies predations from uh, the jackbooted thugs of the IRS. And then those allegations, which actually led to huge changes in the IRS and really debilitated the agency for years, turned out not to be true. Um, kind of tissue of lies they were investigated uh, subsequently. So we've seen this playbook before um, for decades now, and they're just returning to the same old thing. You know, it brings up this imagery in my mind of like the Matrix, all those guys who look the same in the suits with the sunglasses, just this army, this army of auditors coming after everybody. Meanwhile, to me in the real world, it's like one, as you allude to, we actually need more auditors of the super wealthy. They're the ones who aren't getting uh, audited. There was this study that we reported on at The Lever, I think it was two years ago, uh, from the CBO which found uh, that between, as an example, 2011 and 2013, $380 billion of taxes were going unpaid every year. And then uh, at the same time, a Harvard study found that the top 1% of income earners are responsible for about 70% of that tax gap. So that's the top 1% essentially not paying a quarter trillion dollars of taxes that they owe every single year. On top of this, the funding will, as you allude to, ostensibly, hopefully, uh, make it easier for regular people to just deal with the agency, right? I mean, here's the thing. The IRS is not going away. So it's better if it's easier to deal with the agency than have it be impossible to deal with the agency. I guess my, my follow-up question then is, how much knowing what you know about the IRS, having reported on it like you have – how much do you think the funding 
the $80 billion will change things for the better, both on the auditing uh, and collecting the taxes of the super rich who are evading and avoiding taxes? And how much do you think it will improve the day-to-day uh, uh, business transactions with regular people uh, part of the IRS's functions? That's a very good question. And now the tax gap is about a trillion dollars, according wow. to um, Chuck Reddick, who is uh, the outgoing IRS um, commissioner. And you're absolutely right that it's disproportionately the wealthy that are avoiding taxes because um, people who get paid salaries uh, get all their taxes taken out. There's over 95% compliance, 99% compliance from wage earners because it's all taken out ahead of time in our um, in our W-2s. So will this change the culture? Well, um, it's not just a funding issue, it's a cultural issue. Um, and the IRS needs to, uh, it, you know, it's very hard to work for the IRS now. It's kind of people are embarrassed to uh, tell people at barbecues that they work for the IRS. It's a kind of disdained agency. And overall, there's a kind of culture of disdain of civil service. Um, people are incredibly patronizing about it. And then the IRS has this overlay of uh, being vilified. Um, and so there's a kind of cultural reclamation that has to happen um, where people have to feel like it's a, a respectable profession. It's a respectable area to go into uh, that they're actually helping society. Um, and, uh, and then also overlaid from that is a theme that you and I've talked about many times and that is one that obsesses me, which is kind of our culture of elite impunity. We have to have a culture at the IRS where people want to go after um, wealthy tax avoiders because that is where the money is. Um, today, you are more likely to be audited if you uh, have the earned income tax credit. If you are a member of the working poor, if you make about twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year, you're more likely to be audited than if you make five hundred thousand dollars a year. Or if you have a partnership like Trump has, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to have a partnership like Trump has and what like every ultra ultra wealthy person has, almost everyone, um, then get audited because that they're out of their depth. So there needs to be um, expertise. There needs to be hiring to find people who are savvy and intelligent. There needs to be an overhaul about how they audit the wealthy so they do it in teams and they can see everything. And what they, you need is uh, a culture that advocates for serious scrutiny of the ultra wealthy. And, you know, they, they don't have that now. It's a pretty uh, sleepy draggled and beaten down agency. And that's why I think it's a, I always said it's a multi-billion and multi-year reclamation project. And now we have the billions of dollars and now we need the cultural change. So what do you make of the argument that always comes up? And I think it was George W. Bush. I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he said something when he was president. I think, he, I think it was him who said something like the wealthy are always going to avoid taxes. I think it was on the campaign trail. I, I can't remember. But he and you hear this argument over. Well, you know, the wealthy are going to figure out ways to get around the tax code. And, and you know, they can set up all these elaborate uh, shell companies and partnerships and the like. And no matter how much money we put into the IRS, uh, the IRS is never going to really be able to uh, be successful going after the rich. And all that they'll do is use the extra resources to uh, throw more agents, more 
audits on the working poor uh, who are already facing a disproportionate amount of the audits. What do you make of that argument? It's very telling that um, the wealthy are the first people to argue that they're going to be the biggest tax avoiders um, and uh, <laughs> that uh, they have the least attachment to society, um, the least sense of social responsibility. Um, and you've actually had this down through history. Um, you know, William Jennings Bryan, who advocated for uh, the income tax, used to uh, counter um, when people said that the wealthy were just going to avoid taxes, that they had a lower opinion of the wealthy than he did. Um, and uh, I have a pretty low opinion of um, the ultra wealthy and uh, their sense of societal responsibility. But um, if you enforce the tax rules, um, you're going to get people paying more taxes. I think there's a very simple correlation to that. Um, most people don't want to go through the expense of uh, really trying to avoid taxes in ways that are too aggressive. Um, uh, it, it hurts their reputation if they're exposed. If you expose a few of them, um, they're going to understand it. They respond to societal incentives. Um, and right now, the dirty secret of tax avoidance in the United States is it's very easy. It doesn't actually take elaborate means. Um, you can just avoid taxes through uh, not realizing income and uh, borrowing. Um, and so we need both enforcement because there are, are tax abuses. Um, and then we need to kind of change the rules so that the ultra wealthy can't sort of sleepwalk their way through tax avoidance, which a lot of them do right now. So I, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear it from you, which is the Republicans trying to once again defund the IRS or at least take out the or eliminate the new funding for the IRS to catch the IRS up to the resources that it has needed for more than a decade. It's not just the Republican politicians looking for an issue, uh, a kind of a demagogic populist, fake populist issue. Uh, they are speaking for their own uh, donors, presumably. And so I guess my, my question then is, who, who is the real force behind trying to defund the IRS? Is it like individual Coke-style billionaires? Is it giant publicly traded Fortune 500 corporations? Is it for some reason the small business lobby? And and I, I say for some reason because it seems to me that, I mean, I again, I run a, a small organization. Dealing with the IRS is a huge pain in the ass. I want a better funded IRS because I, you know, it's just easier to deal with. But, but is the small business lobby pushing against us or is it all of the above? Like who are the big motivated uh, interests, special interests behind trying to defund the IRS? I think there's a faction on the right that is ideologically motivated because they think it is truly immoral um, to tax the wealthy or to tax the wealthy um, in a progressive way. So I think that there is some ideological motivation. They hate the idea, they're against the idea of progressive taxation. In other words, that we don't tax everybody at the same percentage rate, that the more you earn, the higher percent, the more cents of each dollar you get taken out, um, the more you have, which um, has been a founding principle uh, in this country for 100 years. Um, so there's that. Um, and then they just want to keep more money in their pocket, and the wealthy want to keep more money. And they, um, they're 
there was a sense in the 1950s it, in corporations that uh, they were kind of proud of the taxes that they paid. Um, they didn't have active uh, tax avoidance schemes. Um, there was a sense that there's a kind of shared prosperity that we all enjoy based on a shared set of responsibilities. Um, and there was a kind of broad consensus about it. And the Republicans also had a consensus that we needed to have a functioning tax agency to collect those taxes. And I always think that there, I think that there's always been wealthy tax avoidance um, and schemes, but um, there were higher tax rates and there was more uh uh, able and effective tax enforcement over the last few, um, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and that's when we had people paying higher taxes and a higher tax rate. Um, and effective tax rates legally were much, much higher. They were um, 90% um, in the 50s and 60s, by and large, uh, the highest marginal tax rate. So, uh, you know, rich people don't want to pay into the society now. They, uh, We've sort of severed this sense that there's a kind of shared um, project going on and they no longer feel that sense of responsibility. So last question on the politics of this. Uh, it doesn't seem, at least right now, that that there are the votes for this uh, budget cut to the IRS to clear the US Senate, which is still controlled by Democrats, uh, but things could change. It's possible that the Republicans try to use the upcoming debt ceiling negotiations to uh, demand cuts to the IRS. So we know that there are these omnibus spending bills where it's like, you know, a 5,000 page bill where everything is thrown in and then it's considered must pass or the government is going to shut down. The political question to me is whether there is enough Democratic support and I guess if there is any Republican support – any Republican support to make a priority of keeping the IRS funding in whatever ends up happening budgetarily in Congress this year. Obviously, from the last few decades, there has been lots of support for cutting the IRS. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's the politics have shifted exactly overnight, but they've shifted somewhat quickly. And I think the ultimate question is, as you watching uh, the political situation, do you think the politics in Congress and I guess in the White House, too, has changed enough where when it comes to final end of the year budget wrangling and the like, that preserving IRS funding is enough of a priority among enough legislators that they will actually draw a line in the sand and protect the IRS's funding? Or do you think there's a chance it could flip back? Well, the $80 billion has been allocated. So they have that in hand. And in fact, I think it would have been hard for them to spend the annual amount of money that they, uh, you know, roughly $8 billion a year, although it was supposed to ramp up. So something like $5 billion or so in the first few years. Um, and I think even that would have been kind of challenging for them. And that's been allocated. Now, presumably, the Republicans could get some deal in the debt ceiling where they cut the, uh, the regular budget. Um, uh, but I highly doubt it. And I think that what it was a remarkable thing that the uh, IRS budget was increased at all and was increased so dramatically. Uh, I'm struggling to remember the last time there was this amount of money put into a single gov government agency, uh, or at least you know outside of uh, defense. Um, and I don't know what the precedent was for that. So 
it's it's an accomplishment and they under there's a ma clear majority of democrats who want this and a clear majority of democrats who also want to do something that they were unsuccessful at which was tax the wealthy and they understand that taxing the wealthy pulls very well and is a politically uh i think probably a winning issue um at least if you go by the polls even majority of Republicans believe that the wealthy are not taxed adequately. So I don't think that this is as potent an issue or that um, the IRS strikes fear into average people and that that's a particularly credible issue um, because they just don't see it in their daily lives and haven't for so long. So I'd be surprised if the Democrats kind of secretly give away uh, give it away in the upcoming debt ceiling negotiations. I mean, they're saying that they're not going to negotiate at all. So we're going to see whether that actually um, turns out to be true. It's going to be very hard to say. But I don't think they're going to – the Republicans are going to give this up. This was the first thing that they passed. You know, they want to expose Hunter Biden's uh, depredations um, and they want to impeach Fauci and, and all this stuff. But the real thing that they want to do and they got it, they were very focused was to give a gift to their wealthy donor class. And they did it. Um, and whether they want to execute on that or not, it's clear they do want to execute on that and whether they can or not. Uh, you know, that remains to be seen. Jesse Eisinger is a senior reporter and editor at ProPublica. He's the author of the terrific book, Can't Recommend It Enough, The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. And he has been covering the IRS for years. Jesse, thanks so much, man. Thanks, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment, One Thing, where the Levers reporters share the one thing that's been most on their minds. This professor at Wharton found that ChatGPT was better than some of his students um, on an exam that, that uh, he gives. And, you know, I thought, honestly, that this said a little bit more about business school than it does about <laughs> ChatGPT. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat.